all drugged up on Mountain Dew, you know? <laughs> Going at him like a spider monkey. Welcome back to another episode of Is Fitz Happy? I'm Luke. And I'm Emma. This week we're discussing Chapter 29, Escapes and Captures. It's the one. It's finally happening. (laughs) I feel like Michael Scott. It's happening! (laughs) Everybody calm down. It's happening. We get a pretty long intro to this chapter this time around, and it's talking about... The conflict between the inland duchies and the coastal duchies. And we get a little bit of history as well of the six duchies itself. Right. We get detail on how the coastal duchies, the four coastal duchies, Burns, Buck, Ripon, and Shokes were a kingdom before everything was formed. And then there was a kingdom of Tilth. And then Pharaoh, as I think we've discussed before, was a lot of just nomads Mm -hmm. kind of wandering around. Similar to the mountain territory. Yep. And so this king, who is the king of the four duchies, the four coastal duchies, was fighting Chalced and eventually gave up on that and turned his attention inland to subdue and take over the inland territories. And so he easily took Pharaoh because it wasn't organized and then cut off all the supply routes into Tilth and took that over and took those territories as conquered hostage territories for a while. Yes, and this is King Wielder who does this. Yes, King Wielder. And his granddaughter is queen eventually, and she unites everyone together. She first brings in blood ties and marriages and, and tries to create a unified kingdom and is the first one to use the six duchies as the name. Right, she also elevates the... No- the- previous royalty of Tillith to nobility status and gives Pharaoh their own duchy as well as some nobles there. So that's also a big deal because it's giving them rights, basically, which they did not have up until this point. Right, exactly. But with even with all of that, the geographic differences, the culture differences between two kingdoms is still apparent and there is always going to be differences in how they lived and their values and their cultures between the two areas because they never fully integrated into one land. Right. There's definitely still some hostile feelings. Yes. And so that that becomes even more apparent in Shrewd's wives and his children. So he married uh, Queen Constance first off and she is from the coastal duchies she was a noblewoman of Shokes with relatives among the nobility of Burns as well. And, of course, she gave birth to Chivalry and Verity, and so they had strong ties with the Coastal Duchies through that. And when she passed away, Shrewd married Queen Desire, who was uh, the Duchess of Tilth, and can trace her family lineage back to Tilth royalty. She's from Pharaoh, not Tilth. Oh, excuse me. Yes, she's the Duchess of Pharaoh, but she can trace her lineage back to uh, the the kingdom of and the royal family of Tilth. Yes. The old kingdom. 
As well as. As well as, you know, the pharaoh lying there, the elders of those tribes, and far distant connections to the Farseer family. Probably from the original trying to join of right. the kingdom. Yeah. And so that leads Queen Desire to say that Regal is more royal because he has connections to both ruling families and she has further back connections to the Farseers than than probably Queen Constance had. Which, to be fair, Queen Constance probably also has Farseer in her bloodline far, far back if she looked, considering it feels like it's pretty common for the Six Duchies king or queen to marry someone within the Six Duchies. Yeah. So there's a pretty high likelihood. I'm sure she just didn't care as much because it didn't matter as much to her. And maybe that's just a difference in the cultures or like they already feel like they're part of the royal family no matter what, even if they don't have one of their own married currently to the king. I don't know. Yeah. This beginning part of the chapter really reads like a history book because we live inside the story and know it's not just for these certain geopolitical reasons that you know, the coastal duchies backed Fitz or the unborn heir of Ketrican rather than Regal. It's not just the two differences in culture between the inland duchies and the coastal duchies. There's much more going on. But that does kind of sum up the differences. We know that Regal took after his mother in thinking that the inland duchies were more royal area to begin with and better suited for, you know, for lavish parties and things like that. Which uh, Living in excess. Right, which to be fair, kind of true. It is, it is true. So, and so he really did not like the coastal duchies, and therefore, there is that split, I guess, that comes from the old kingdom and the new, the the six duchies and the old coastal kingdom that they were talking about. But everything can't be boiled down to just those two, that history. Right. But it does stem from that. And so I feel like this is just a very sterile version of, you know, and this is why the coastal duchies backed the unborn child of Ketrican rather than Regal, who is an upstart from right. the inland duchies. Right. They try to pin it all on that ancient conflict that they united together, but it's still simmering underneath the surface. Well, to be fair, it does kind of work. There is part of that at play in this. Definitely. Yeah, there definitely is. This is definitely a couple years look back version rather than in the moment version, which I think most history is anyway. We don't all know every individual thing. That's why I'm saying it like reads like a history book. Right. Because it's an overview and it doesn't tell the same story that we see through Fitz's eyes. Not exactly the same story, I should say. I also just wanted to ask you, how long ago do you think this was? Like, in conjunction to Fitz's life? Oh, I would say a few hundred years, at least. Because the way they say this, it's so interesting. It almost feels like, well, of course they didn't like each other, because the four original duchies were always a kingdom, where it's like, but you've had, like, 500 years to get over it, or... A hundred years or whatever, which I guess isn't that long, but that's several generations. (laughs) But I I don't know. I mean, 
maybe they're not nice to each other and that just has never changed i don't know once you develop like certain different cultures and and values you're not going to change that easily i don't think especially if it's so separated off it's everything's always referred to as coastal or inland right even before this separation and semi civil war that was going on it's always been kind of separate even in Fitz's mind and his descriptions. That's fair. So it feels like it's just ingrained in the whole six duchies that there is a separation between those two. Yeah, I guess I just never really got over it. Clearly, because the lineage of the original royalty of Pharaoh is still going on about how royal she is, which can't be that royal if she lost. So (laughs) her family, I suppose, lost. I don't think she's claiming that she's royalty. She's just more royal than Queen Constance was. Which is a type of claiming royalty, right? Like, my blood is more royal than yours because I'm related to kings who lost a war. (laughs) I don't know. It just feels like, are you really royal anymore? Like, (laughs) I don't know. I I don't know. Because maybe... I think think it matters in this world because there are peasants and there's nobility. (laughs) I suppose. So, like, that does matter, actually, in this world. (laughs) If you can claim that you have higher blood than some of the other people or you're born to certain families, that really does make a difference in your social standing. I guess. Maybe it's also just, like, weird to me because royalty are just regular people. They just happen to, like, be born in the right family under the right circumstances. So it's, like very weird to be like inherently i'm more royal than you because a long time ago my ancestors were kings you know i don't know i just maybe that's where i'm having the issue here so we jump into the chapter with fitz starting to describe the king and waiting ceremony He's talking how it's way too long or way longer than it should be because it's regal and he wants all the pomp and ceremony that he can possibly get. He's describing all of these stately ranks of noblemen and noble women and how King Shrewd was kind of out of it and looked very tired. And Queen Ketrikan wasn't that dressed up, really. She was just in a plain robe of purple with a gold band around her head. And that's pretty much the only thing that indicated that she should be standing up there is that crown. Right. And this kind of makes Fitz sad slash worried because it kind of makes her look extra foreign, which is part of the problem of getting her to keep her power is that everyone thinks she's too foreign. And so he's just like stuck on the fact that she looks so different standing up there because the king is decked out in jewels Mm -hmm. and regal will also be decked out in jewels (laughs) so he says i knew she saw herself still as sacrifice rather than queen she could not see that the starkness of her attire made her look dramatically foreign to the court which is true she does see herself as sacrifice pretty much the whole time Mm -hmm. later on in tawny man i think she grows into her role a little bit more and even more so in the last trilogy. But at this point, she's still super young. She just went through severe losses, and she is still that young girl who grew up in the mountains with their way of thinking. Right. And that's not going to 
be untaught or she's not going to rewire her brain anytime soon. And the sacrifice of the people does not, you know, flaunt themselves to the rest of their congregation. Right. Which is a good sentiment. It just isn't great when most of the people here are on Regal's side. (laughs) Yeah. And so anything that points her out from a crowd and makes her seem foreign just reinforces Regal's points that he's been spreading around about her. Right. And he describes the fool as well, sauntering up the aisles in between in his black and white motley with black and white face paint, waving Ratsy, his scepter, around at everybody. And people don't really know what to make of him at that point so some of the guards are like maybe we should get him away but he just kind of goes up to the king plops down and the king ruffles his hair and then nobody (laughs) can make a move against him because people are curious to look at him he is the king's fool right the people are so busy trying to get a look at what he's doing the guards can't really get through the crowd and by the time they can With the king's protection, what are they going to do? Right, exactly. Because although I'm sure most of these guards don't really think of Shrewd as king, they're not about to publicly make a statement of, like, who cares what the king wants. (laughs) Even for Regal's people, that's a bit too bold today. Right. Fitz says, "I I myself feared it would be the fool's last prank. It's not, but... In this motley, I believe it is. As the fool, as the king's fool, it is the last prank he pulls. Yeah. I I think you're right. Then Robin Hobb changes gear a little bit and goes into describing how the atmosphere in the castle has been for the last few days and how it still is during this ceremony of how things have kept happening and Chade has kept up these omens and kept things in a little, you know, portentous and spooky vibe going on throughout (laughs) all of Buckkeep. Right. So to get the background of why people are maybe more interested in the fool than normal or why it's okay to let him go through this, she gives us what's been going on in the background Mm -hmm. for the days that we missed. And Fitz kind of talks about some of those portents, but also how maybe his trust in Burns was a little misplaced because people are looking at him too knowingly of the minor nobility of the coastal duchies. And they everyone just seems to be catching his eye a little bit too much. It looks too suspicious, and he's worried about that as well. Right. He doesn't want Regal's people to notice that they are taking notice of him. (laughs) Right, exactly. Which part of this could be his paranoia for the decision he made, feeling like he's a traitor. And part of it could really be that everybody knows. It's brought up a couple times this chapter, so I think news kind of got spread about a little bit. Right. I don't doubt that. I just feel like maybe it's not as noticeable as Fitz thinks. Right, yeah. He also is a trained assassin, so like he notices, but... Are regular people taking note? Very hard to tell. (laughs) So with all of that in his mind, he's trying to avoid those people, those minor nobilities, to avoid attention to himself, and also to avoid Serene and Justin and Will. And so he goes off and sequesters himself away in Verity's tower to try to contact Verity as well. Right. So while he waits for the ceremony to actually take place, 
he's spending his time trying skilling again. And it doesn't work. No. He is too paranoid. He's just straining his ears to see if, you know, a footstep is coming around the corner anywhere or if anyone is checking at his mind or his defenses. And it's not a good mental space and it's not something that you can be in when you're trying to skill and be open. Right. We also hear from him that there is a rising storm coming up, so it's not necessarily great weather. And then in addition to those, in addition to more stories about the pox man going around and the snakes on the hearth, the day's bake of bread had failed to rise and the milk had curdled in the casks before even the cream could be skimmed from it. Which are more directly from two chapters ago, the poem about how you know death is on its way, which also big foreshadowing, Um, (laughs) but (laughs) not the kind that Fitz thinks it's going to be. Right. And so, of course, the, the kitchen is all astir and Cook Sarah's out of her mind trying to catch up and and shaken to her core and declared that never before had such a thing dared to happen in her kitchens, <laughs> which I thought was a kind of funny phrasing. Right. So they had to catch up with all of this. And there's, you know, that hustle and that that back back of your mind paranoia about all of these omens and portents going around. The atmosphere is just exactly what Chade wants. Yes. He's doing very well at his pranks. Right. And on top of the normal omens, thing other things are going wrong. Like the food is or the stew is becoming too salted and the beer has somehow gone flat. The horror. The Duke of Tilth complained of vinegar instead of wine, which led the Duke of Burns to comment to those of Shokes and Ripon that even a bit of vinegar would have been welcome as a sign of hospitality in their rooms. That part, pretty sure is not shade, and it's just strictly Mm -hmm. regal, refusing to accommodate any hospitality in those rooms. Right. And that got back to Mistress Hasty, who scolded everybody, of course, and there was complaint among the lesser servants that an order had come down to keep expenses for those guests to a minimum, but no one could be found who would admit to giving such an order, or even to passing it down. So Regal did very well in his dissemination of that information or that that order or his cronies did a very good job of keeping that hush hush. It could have been the skill. It could. He yeah, could have made the coterie skill people to just leave them alone. That's true. To make the I don't know if it would be to make them mad or just so he didn't have to actually say out loud. <laughs> Don't serve them. The the further separation that he can get from them, I think, the better for him. Right. Well, he still wants them to say yes to his king in waiting, which is odd to me. But I guess it's like literally four to two. So probably maybe want to hold out on the overt hate until you get fully crowned as king in waiting. Right, right. And he wants to isolate himself in Verity's Tower, Fitz does, because of all of this happening, all the atmosphere, all of the paranoia, all of his thoughts about what's happening. But he dared not miss the King and Waiting ceremony itself because of the message that would send and it would single him out. 
again, he wants this all this plan to go smoothly. And so we get a little description of how he hates his clothes that he's wearing again here. <laughs> right. An uncomfortable victim of a shirt with overfull sleeves and some very itchy leggings. Which, to be fair, itchy leggings are the worst. That would be awful. But maybe if he wore them more, they wouldn't be so itchy. <laughs> <laughs> and so he's thinking about all the plan, if that's in place, just waiting for Regal so this thing can get over with. And he's thinking, oh, Birk... Birk's probably in place and waiting in the storm already with the horses. He He's told me, you know, that when he's gone, I have to keep up bribes to a smith where he kept um, Sooty and Ruddy and all of these different things. Like, I actually have to start doing stuff once they're gone. A mutter of wonder broke me from my reverie. I glanced toward the dais where everyone seemed to be staring. There was a brief flickering, and for an instant... One of the white tapers burning there flickered blue. Then another spat a spark and burned blue for an instant. There was another mutter, but the wayward candles settled after that to burning evenly and well. Neither Ketrikin nor King Shrewd appeared to notice anything amiss, but the fool sat up and shook Ratsy at the errant candles in rebuke. We get a little taste of what's coming there. Right. A little more of an omen just to set the crowd muttering. And then Regal comes down. He, of course, is being living up to his name, I should say, and being stately and regal and decked out in jewels and nodding leisurely and smiling. And he's wearing a beautiful outfit of red velvet and white silk. He probably looks the epitome of royalty. Yeah, definitely does. For as much as, you know, I make fun of him. That's important to him is his image. Right. And so during the ceremony, things are going okay-ish, but probably not exactly how Regal wants because the king is a little bit more befuddled than normal. He's not all there at the moment. So when he's handed the ceremonial objects to, you know, crown Regal and put the necklace around him, he's just holding on to the objects and eventually Regal has to take them out of his hands and crown himself. Which I thought was a bit symbolic, a little bit on the nose, to be right. honest, but a bit symbolic nevertheless. And so it continues on with, you know, King Shrewd starting to read something from a scroll, but stopping in the middle, and then Ketrikin takes over, and Fitz is like, it must be breaking her heart to read all of these things of all of his Shrewd's children who have died. Yes. It mentions that the daughter he had that died shortly after birth is also named and it's just a very sad thing to think about that shrewd has had four children and is as far as the public knows down to one yeah she did not hesitate at verity's name but read aloud the brief statement lost to misfortune while on a quest to the mountain kingdom as if it were an ingredient list of the child she carried no mention was made A child as yet unborn was an heir, but not a king-in-waiting. The child could not step forward to claim that title until he or she was at least sixteen. So he crowns himself. Regal crowns himself with all this ceremony. And Fitz says, Chade's timing was slightly off. The candles did not seriously begin to flicker blue until the dukes were wending their way forward to pledge once more to House Farseer. 
Regal tried to ignore this phenomenon until the muttering of the folk threatened to drown out Duke Ram of Tilth's oath. Then Regal turned and casually pinched out the offending candle. I admired his aplomb, especially when a second candle almost immediately went blue and he repeated the gesture. I myself thought it was a bit too much of a portent when a torch set in a sconce by the main door suddenly whooshed out a blue flame and a foul stench before it guttered dark. All eyes had turned to watch it. Regal waited it out, but I saw the clench of his jaw and the tiny vein that throbbed on his temple. So, this scene made me wonder about Chade and his weird rules that he puts upon himself of not doing things for himself. He always tells Fitz that they need they are tools they are not doing anything for themselves and also last chapter was adamant that if something happens to Ketrikin her child and King Shrewd then they will have to serve Regal that Regal is the rightful heir and that's who they're going to serve but yet he sets up all of this that makes it look as though it's a horrible omen that that regal is going to be king it doesn't bode well for the future granted pretty true about how he's going to rule (laughs) but it's not like a great start (laughs) and so if he really truly believes in his heart of hearts if if it comes down to it i'm going to serve regal why would he be okay going to the lengths of making his regal's ceremony seem so horrible. Because right now, regal is treasonous, and there are two other heirs. Verity is still alive, and Ketrikin's child. So, regal is a usurper at the moment, and the king has agreed to the plan of fleeing, and that regal isn't the correct heir. So, Chade is doing all of his his work as he's supposed to he's he's trying to undermine the rule of a pretender while ferreting out the true rulers but if they do perish i'm sure he'll go back and and try to hold together the six duchies right but he's doing the best he can right now to keep the true rulers in place or the true heirs there it just feels like he's making an awful lot of work for himself in the future, potentially. <laughs> I'm <laughs> if sure. Things go I, wrong. I honestly don't know if he would serve Regal. I, on one hand, I think he would just because he's so loyal to the six duchies. He would feel obligated to try to save the six duchies from Regal and manipulate it as much as he could to salvage what's happening. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I feel like he would just be too... Like, that that final severing of the ties with the ruling family would happen if all of them had died and Chade would be left alone. I don't know in my mind if he would actually go back. I know. Or if he would actively take a role against Regal or anything. Maybe he would just quietly work in the background but never, like, reveal himself to Regal or offer any help. That's true. I could see that. I don't know. But the, every time I think about it, I'm like, there's no way he meant it. There's no way he meant, oh, maybe he'll get wise as he ages. 
I think he's just trying to stop Fitz from doing something stupid. <laughs> I'm wondering if he was talking about Shrewd during that conversation. So he said, I've seen kings grow wise as they age. Hmm. So I wonder if Shrewd was uh, not as good as his name when he was younger. <laughs> <laughs> he had to take over when he was really young. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, that was just a yeah. wild speculation. Could be. Maybe that's why he likes Regal. <laughs> Reminds him of his youth. Yeah, maybe. Fitz remarks that he doesn't know how Regal planned to end the ceremony, but it probably wasn't just abruptly calling for the musicians to start playing music and the feast to roll in. He's trying to change the mood and, and distract them from the blue candles and everything like that, so he quickly rolls out the feast while King Shrewd and Queen-in-Waiting Ketrakin excuse themselves. Fitz tries to as well, but he's kind of accosted by a lot of coastal nobility coming up to him. Right, lesser nobility specifically, because he has been stationed in the lesser nobility area. Yes. So the ma major nobility regular nobility <laughs> high nobles the high nobles are eating with regal in a different room so they couldn't themselves come and show support to fitz which is probably pretty good but yeah he's getting accosted by a lot of people yeah. he says i had been told that all three coastal dukes would know i concurred with their plan it was unnerving to find evidence that this was known among the lesser nobility as well Celerity made no overt claim upon me as escort, but made me nervously aware of myself by following me about as mutely as a hound. I could not turn, but I found her half a dozen steps away. Plainly, she wished to speak to me, or wished me to speak to her, but I did not trust my wits to find suitable words. I almost broke when a lesser noble from Shokes casually asked me if I thought any of the warships would be harbored as far south as False Bay. With a sinking heart, I suddenly realized my error. None of them feared Regal. They saw no danger. Only a spoiled popinjay of a boy who wished to wear fine clothes and a circlet and claim a title to himself. They believed he would go away and they could ignore him. I knew better. And it's true, he does know better. Right. And with those actions... I think it is true that they don't know what Regal's capable of. They see him as a usurper and like, oh, how did he get so much power and everything like this? They're just turning the duchies against each other. But they don't see how ruthless Regal can be. Right. Because he hides it extremely well. Well, yeah. Well, he does things that are crazy ruthless, but he also always gets away with it. And that's made him bold, but not bold enough for people to pick up on the fact that he is a psycho question mark uh, and doesn't care who he kills as long as he has power. And I think it just reminded me of how frustrated I've been reading this in that everyone's like, Oh, Regal's so great. Even though he's spending all this money and then saying, no, we don't have money because people just trust him. He just has charisma. He has, He's a great politician. He can just lie straight to people's faces and they believe him. Yeah. <laughs> and he does have a lot of traits and on the lesser end of his evil 
have mostly this air of spoiled rich kid who just wants more money and power. And ultimately, that's kind of his driving force is kind of I'm better than you. Yeah, it's just that if you only see that and have never been exposed to the underbelly of how he is gaining that power, it would be very easy to be like, that kid's never done a thing in his life. He doesn't know how to do anything. We're safe. I don't know. I feel really bad for the people of the duchies in what they're about to endure. (laughs) If I were not very careful, they would get me killed or worse. If there was anything Regal could devise that he saw as worse. And Fitz tries to slip away a couple times, but eventually just has to announce that he has a headache. I'm leaving. Goodbye. Just as I thought I was free, Celerity touched a shy hand to mine and wished me good night in such a dispirited voice that I knew that I had hurt her feelings. That, I think, rattled me more than anything else that evening. I thanked her and, in my most cowardly act of that night, dared to kiss her fingertips. The resurgence of light in her eyes shamed me. I fled up the stairs. At that moment, because of that night, he realizes that that's how life would be for him. That empty, you know, in the spotlight interactions, the illusion of power, and too many would be dazzled by it, he says. If I had ever thought or dreamed of being a real prince instead of a bastard, I abandoned the dream that night. It was entirely too public a profession. So he goes to his own chamber and changes into sensible clothes. <laughs> right. You know, I feel sorry for him because this is kind of an exasperated sort of situation. I don't think being a prince would always be this tense, mostly because if he was a real prince, he wouldn't have to worry about another prince trying to kill him for being too regal. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. And so I don't think there would be as much anxiety. I think he's thinking, oh, this is awful because I'm at death's door. But as a real prince, he would be able to just hang out. I guess people would probably still come up to him even at a party like this and be like, hey, how about some taxes or something? <laughs> that's. I think that's mainly what he's talking about, actually, because Fitz is such a introvert as a person. Mm. He doesn't like talking to too many people. And he says this is entirely too public of a profession. I'm pretty sure he's just exhausted with how many people are approaching and speaking to him, not on his terms. Fair. That's a good point. I guess I just saw it as like, well, Fitz, it probably sucks because Regal could kill you if yeah. he finds out. Like, yeah, that isn't fun. <laughs> I I think since he's already been dealing with that pressure for, you know, the past years of his life. Right. I think he's kind of used to that. But this extra layer on top of everyone like, hey, you're, you're our leader now kind of thing. We're uh-huh. looking to you and maybe we can talk about policy even though there's that extra added stress of it being right underneath the nose of the person who wants to kill you. Right. Um, I I think that is what he really doesn't like anymore. It's just, oh my God, I have to talk to these people all the time. I don't get a say in like, hey, I just want to hang out with my wolf. Right. 
I also think it's funny that he's like, I don't know how Verity does it. Like, bro, where have you been the last four years? He doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) True. (laughs) After he changes, he heads to Molly's room. He calls himself foolish for doing that, but he goes anyways, and it's empty. I stood there while the devastation finally became real. It was all to Molly, the stripped bed, the hearth swept clean, but with a small stack of wood set ready for a fire for the next resident. Those were the touches that told me she had tidied herself out of the room. Not a ribbon, not a taper, not even a scrap of wicking remained of the woman who had lived a servant's life here. Molly was gone. She wasn't coming back. I had held myself together by refusing to think of her. This empty room jerked the blindfold from my eyes. I looked into myself and despised what I saw. I wish I could call back the kiss I had placed on Celerity's fingertips. Balm for a girl's wounded pride? Or lure to bind her and her father to me? I no longer knew which it had been. Neither could be justified. Both were wrong. If I believed it all in the love I had pledged to Molly... That one act was proof I was guilty of all she had charged me with. I would always put the farseers ahead of her. I had dangled marriage before Molly like bait, left her with no pride in herself nor belief in me. She had hurt me by leaving me. What she could not leave behind was what I had done to her belief in herself. That she must carry with her forever. A belief that she had been tricked and used by a selfish, lying boy who lacked even the courage to fight for her. That passage there, yes, it's a little bit of Fitz self-pitying and moping, but it's also a good realization that he really hasn't had before, and he does realize some of the wrongs that he has been, you know, committing with, with Molly. Some of the things that he did do incorrectly, that he did do wrong, that he misled her, that he lied, and that all of that kind of forced her hand. Right. I think it's a good show of growth in his himself and just how he's starting to hold himself accountable. I think it's a good start. And I like that it is still clumsy. We still have a bit too much of how hurt he is in all of this, which is definitely okay to feel in this situation. It just seems like when you get older, you realize that sometimes you can't center the hurt that you're feeling over something that you did to something else, somebody else. And so I like that this does still have hints of youth and just childishness in it. It says a lot about Robin Hobbs writing. Yeah. This isn't all of a sudden... A, a mature adult who knows exactly <laughs> how to think and feel. It's a teen who is slowly realizing it can't always all be about me, but and I am action- really hurt. <laughs> and my actions do have consequences. And yeah, with his change of mind and, and the shedding of the cocoon before in the last chapter of taking on that responsibility and telling himself that he would show Molly he could be a better person and and lead and hold together this kingdom and eventually go after her again, he sees the relationship in a new light. Right. Which shows growth, but like you said, there's still some of that hurt boy 
who doesn't fully understand what's going on. Right. And who doesn't have a full grasp on how to regulate emotions well, which is a very hard skill to learn. So especially for one who is witted and just feels everybody else's. So he doesn't really need to. (laughs) Right. So and who had childhood trauma. Yes. So I do feel for him in this and I do not want to like shoot down all the like mistakes he made or whatever. But I do want to point out that there are little things that show his youthfulness because I think it it does point to slow growth that is more natural and feels more real Yeah. than if he were to come here and go, wow, here's all the horrible things I did to Molly and I really truly don't deserve her and I hope she's happy. You know, like <laughs> I think that would almost feel out of place. With that realization, with that talking to himself about that relationship, He asks himself, can desolation be a source of courage, or was it merely recklessness and a desire for self-destruction? I went boldly back downstairs and went directly to the king's chambers. The torches in the wall sconces outside his door annoyed me by spitting blue sparks as I passed. A little too dramatic, Jade. Which is, which is, you know, real, real good irony coming from Fitz right there. (laughs) Right, as he's dramatically marching down the hallway. Wow, Jade, so dramatic. Can desolation be a source of courage? A little too dramatic, Jade, with the blue candles here, too. Wow. (laughs) So he goes to the, the king's chambers, and he walks through there, and it's barren. It's also empty. Things have been cleaning out, and it's it doesn't remind him of the man that King Shrewd was, that he knew growing up. Growing up, he is not the same king. King Shrewd has left this room long ago. There's nothing of a of an active man with hobbies. All of those things have been replaced with, you know, censers with uh, herbs and cups of wine, and it's just a sickly man's room, not the king's room anymore. And with this new perspective, he's going in and seeing this. Like, this is a change. He is going to be gone. He's leaving this. He's not coming back to this room. But he left a long time ago in spirit. Right. But I also do want to point out that he says that with how bare everything looks, it looked like a mediocre inn. And I just want to say, what kind of inns has he been in that a mediocre inn is the size of the king's bedchamber? Like... (laughs) I imagine this to be a pretty large room, and even though there's not, like, ornate stuff around, I would assume it still has, like, some feel of royalty. Apparently not. Yeah, he says, nothing left here was worth stealing, or Regal would have left a guard on the door. Like, they they literally carted everything probably to the Inland Duchies already. It's threadbare, it probably just has... But wouldn't he have, like, a cool bed or something? Like... Maybe just the bed? But you can't like you can't take steal that. a bed. But I'm. But it doesn't matter if you can steal it or not. Like to say the king's quarters without all the stuff in it is basically just a mediocre inn. Felt like a really big diss to me. Yeah. <laughs> and he hears footsteps, so he he hides behind a curtain. King Shrewd, Queen Ketrickin, Rosemary, the Fool, and Wallace walk in, and they have conversations while he's hiding behind there. And he remarks to himself that he's pitying Rosemary, which I thought was, was again, interesting because we don't learn this reveal of Rosemary for a little bit. And it, 
and he's had a lot of comments on how he pities Rosemary, and then later on he's so mad at her for mm-hmm. what she did. And Chade kind of has to explain, like, you were the same age. Like, you yeah. you did things, too. You were just a kid. So was she. Yeah. And here he's pitying her because she's obviously very tired, but she has to straighten herself back up because the adults are talking and she can't go to sleep right now. She has to do her job, which unclear as to what that is at the moment. Or ever, really, because why do adults need a small child around adult times? But whatever, it doesn't matter. Ketrakin took her in and is training her as an attendant. Right. So she she keeps her by her side to like help her with things, and I think that's, in Fitz's eyes, the only job she has, which is proper to his eyes, that, oh right. yeah, she should be attending the queen, but we both know that she has another job that she has to attend to. Right, right. But it is, I feel like it's interesting, his pity of her, of when she's like around too many adults and a lot of things happening and she clearly is bored or tired. And he's like, oh, I feel so sorry for her because I feel like she reminds him of himself. Yeah, I can see that. I don't know. She's more like him than he knows, I think. Yeah, definitely. The fool, without Fitz saying anything, looks straight at the curtain that he's hiding behind, and then turns to Wallace and starts badgering Wallace, and basically annoys him out of the room. He he talks about how how Wallace is. Oh, he he doesn't even mention anything directly to Wallace. He just twists Wallace's words and makes him annoyed. Wallace is trying to start a fire, and none of the wood is burning. He says it it burns, but it won't catch. So. Wallace is deep in the superstitious throes right now of the whole mood of the castle. He's like, oh, this is, nothing's going right. All these candles are blue and everything. And Fitz is kind of surprised that he is a superstitious man. He mentions that there was a brief wildness in his eyes that spoke well of how little he liked this omen. The fire simply will not burn, he announced. And then as if realizing the significance of what he said, he paused, mouth agape. We are witched, said the fool benignly. On the hearth, little Rosemary drew her knees up under her chin and looked about with round eyes. All trace of sleepiness was gone for her. Wallace suddenly demands, why are there no guards? Things are weird around the castle. Why isn't there anyone here? And again, the fool just keeps trying to pester him. He knows Fitz is there, and I'm sure Chade told him the plan, so he's trying to get... Wallace to leave. He's trying to get them alone. And he keeps twisting things. He keeps, you know, twisting the wood around, like, oh, go get different wood and stuff like that. Wallace is trying to tell Rosemary to fetch something, and Rosemary's like, no, I'm too scared. <laughs> and eventually, Ketrakin's like, just go, Wallace. Fool, that's enough. Stop yelling and talking to Wallace. Wallace, just leave. <laughs> go get wood. Right. And as he leaves, he's like, well, since the fool is too scared to leave, I must. Which the fool responds with, He clamors and weeps for the guards to come guard him from wood that will not burn. But I, I am the one who lacks courage. Ah, me. <laughs> fool, peace, please. The queen's please seem genuine. <laughs> There's literally like two pages in my ebook of the fool just 
bothering Wallace. Right. Telling him to blow harder, maybe turn and blow from the other end and that'll work better. (laughs) Telling I'm not a dog. I shouldn't go fetch. And just, yeah, the fool being the fool, which is always great. She tells him, the queen tells him, Wallace, go bring not guards, but simply different wood. Our king wishes not this commotion, but simply rest. Go now. Go. And as he walks away, the fool says, shall I come with to hold your hand, brave Wallace? (laughs) Which sends him striding from the room. Yes. And Fitz is free to come out from behind the, the curtain. My queen, I said softly, and a quickly indrawn breath was the only sign that I startled her as I stepped out of the king's bedchamber. If you wish to retire, the fool and I could see the king to his bed. I know you are weary, and that you wish to rest early this night. From the hearth, Rosemary regarded me with round eyes. Perhaps I shall, said Ketrickin, rising with surprising alacrity. Come, Rosemary. Good night, my king. She swept from the room, with Rosemary practically trotting at her heels. The child gave us many a backward glance. Those two lines there are a little bit telling. Mm-hmm. Rosemary regarded me with round eyes, and she kept giving backward glances towards Fitz. She was obviously probably told by Regal, tell me if Fitz comes, because we know the previous time that he was in there, she all of a sudden came from behind like Regal and his guards to uh-huh. go over to Ketrickin. So she she's obviously tattling and wants to do it this time, is like, where did he come from? He's not supposed to be there. I have to go tell, but Ketrickin is kind of dragging her along to her room. Right. And so Fitz gets down to the king's level and he says, my king, it is time. I told him gently, I shall keep watch here as you go. Is there anything special you wish to take with you? He swallowed, then focused his eyes on me. No, no, there is nothing here for me. Nothing to leave behind, and nothing to stay for. He closed his eyes, spoke softly. I have changed my mind, Fitz. I think I shall stay here, and die in my own bed this night. The fool and I were both struck dumb for an instant. Ah, no, the fool cried softly while I said, My king, you are but tired. And the only thing I shall get is more tired. There was a strange lucidity in his eyes. The boy king I had touched briefly when we skilled together looked out at me from that pain-racked body. My body fails me. My son has become a serpent. Regal knows his brother lives. He knows the crown he wears is not rightfully his. I did not think he would... I thought at the last he would think better. Tears welled in his ancient eyes. I had thought to save my king from a disloyal prince. I should have known there was no saving a father from the betrayal of a son. He reached a hand toward me, a hand gone from a muscled sword holder to a gaunt and yellowed claw. I would say farewell to Verity. I would have him know from me that I did not countenance any of this. Let me at least keep that much faith with the son who kept faith with me. He pointed to a spot by his feet. Come, Fitz, take me to him. It's an incredibly sad 
passage. Right. It's very emotional, and it's something that we haven't talked a lot about. We talked briefly about how he's King Shrewd is his father and Regal's his favorite son, but the sheer betrayal that King Shrewd had to believe in order to get persuaded to go away from right. someone who is related to you. It's his favorite son. He tried so hard to raise him. He tried so hard to lead him to the correct path, to sway him away from Queen Desire and raise him to be a real leader. And at the end, he was still believing in Regal that he wouldn't do it. And then through the ceremony, he had to sit there and it actually became real for him. It actually became real for King Shrewd that his son betrayed him, would rather kill his brother, and ignore King Shrewd, his father entirely, to get power. He's done. And you can tell through this passage, through this last couple sentences, that he wishes he treated Verity a little bit better. And he wants to convey that. He wants to talk to Verity. Right. Fitz doesn't hesitate. He immediately goes to King Shrewd. But the fool is there saying, No, my king, rise, let us go into hiding. There you may think this through. You, you need not decide this now. And Shrewd just ignores him and immediately goes into the Skill River, river with Fitz. We turned in that current as I waited for him to give us direction. Instead, he suddenly embraced me. Son of my son... Blood of my blood, in my own way I have loved you. My king, my young assassin, what have I made of you? How have I twisted my own flesh? You do not know how young you still are. Chivalry's son, it is not too late to grow straight again. Lift up your head, see beyond all this. I had spent my life becoming what he wished me to be. These words now filled me with confusion and questions there were no time to answer. I could feel his strength fading. Verity, I whispered to remind him. I felt him reach out and steadied that reaching for him. I felt the brush of Verity's presence and then a sudden dwindling of the king. I groped after him as one would dive after a drowning man in deep water. I seized his consciousness, held it to me, but it was like gripping a shadow. He was a boy in my arms, frightened and struggling against he knew not what. Then he was gone, like a bubble popping. I had thought I had glimpsed the frailty of life when I held the dead child in my arms. Now I knew it. Here, and then not here. Even a snuffed candle may leave a trailing wisp of smoke. My king was simply gone. King Shrewd turns to Fitz and tells him, basically, I don't like how I treated Verity. I should have had more faith in him as he added me, and I don't like how I treated you. I loved you in my own way, but at the same time, I didn't treat you as 
the son of my son. Become more than what I made you. And it's an extremely humanizing moment that we don't get from King Shrewd very often. We've had a few scenes with him where I've said that, but it's just mainly the skill connections between Fitz and him that convey this. But in this last scene with King Shrewd, he becomes a true he becomes a true grandfather to Fitz just for one time and it really confuses Fitz obviously because he's never been treated like that before by Shrewd. It's a beautiful and yet very sad scene because of the next part that happens of how he's drained away and and his strength has been being leached off him by Justin and Serene for who knows how long. Justin and Serene, like sucking leeches forsaking a dying fish, rose and tried to fasten to me. Here the source of their increased strength and the king's slow failing. Here the mist that had clouded his mind and filled his days with weariness. Galen, their master, had made Verity his target, but he had missed his kill and instead met his own death. How long these had been fastened to the king, how long they had sucked skill strength from him, I would never know. They would have been privy to all he skilled through me to Faraday. Much was suddenly made clear to me, but it was all too late. I felt them fastened to me, knew they were drawing off my strength, and that with no reason to refrain from it, they would kill me in moments. Verity, I cried out, but I was already too weakened. I would never reach him. Off him, curs! A familiar snarl, and then night eyes repelled through me. I did not think it would work, but as before, he forced the wit weapon upon them through the channel the skill had opened. The wit and the skill were two different things, as unlike as reading and singing, or swimming and riding a horse. Yet when they were linked to me by magic, they must have been vulnerable to this other magic. I felt them repulsed from me, but there were two of them to withstand the impact of Night Eye's attack. It would not defeat them both. <sighs> An intense few pages there. Yes. The King's death always kind of gets me a little bit emotional because it it shows what could have been what Fitz could have gotten as a kid mm-hmm. and what Verity could have gotten what we what we could have seen from the king for the past few years right i guess whenever i read this i get more frustrated than sad i mean it is definitely sad i probably cried over it the first time i read <laughs> Because this is a big person in Fitz's life that is leaving it. But it just makes me mad because there was every opportunity for Shrewd to not have things end this way. He made every choice that led to this moment. Not, I suppose I shouldn't say every choice because it wasn't his choice to have people sucking the skill out of him. But... He continued to choose to favor one of his sons who had already tried to kill his nephew. Or, no, that's not. Grandson. (laughs) He had already chosen to favor Regal over everything that he has continued to do. It didn't seem to matter how far Regal pushed. It could all be explained away. 
And the fact that it took Regal physically taking the crown from him and pretending as though his brother was dead so he could get the crown for him to be like, oh, well, that's a step too far. He's killed people. He's tried to kill Fitz. He's tried to kill Verity. And that's the line. It just is frustrating that he is so complicit, I suppose, in what Regal has become. And then at the end of his life is like, woe is me. If only I had put my trust in the right people. Like, yeah, if only you had. You had every opportunity. You had eyes. (laughs) You were at one point capable of seeing what was going on around you. And it's, I don't know, it just makes me really frustrated because I do wish he would have been a better grandfather to Fitz and a father to Verity instead of obviously making Verity feel as though he is the worst of the two options between himself and (laughs) Regal. I don't know, it just, it's frustrating, I guess. Yeah, it is. I, I definitely see like there's still flaws in the man that he becomes in the last moments there's definitely those peeking out it's just very sympathetic flaws to my my point of view just because right i don't know she she writes so masterfully the emotion coming through these pages is, is is crazy when he says i thought at last he would think better he was really holding out hope That his son was redeemable in some way. Because you don't want to think that, you know, one of your family members, somebody that you raised, would be willing to do those things to your own family. You thought you would raise them better. I'm sure he thinks it's a failure of of his own. And I mean, some of the situation, yes, but the raising of Regal and, and how Regal could do these things. I'm sure he's like, this is all all my fault and I... It's just just the emotion seeping out of the pages is crazy. No, it definitely is really sad. And I do feel for him this heartbreaking moment of, wow, my son really went there and I was wrong all along. And that is really, really horrible. And I do feel great sympathy for this man. I just also have anger that he didn't see it before and that he ignored literally everyone in his life to not see it. And then when he is at the end where he actually can't do anything anymore, that's when he's like, boy, sure wish somebody could have changed the fate, huh? I don't know. It's just like, that's you. (laughs) That's literally your role. You have the most power out of everybody and you chose not to use it. And so to like wish well on all as you die after putting them in the positions you've put them in is just ugh. Do you think that the Lakota members, Justin and Serene, put more cloud upon his mind to favor Regal? Because Fitz says, Hear the mist that had clouded his mind and filled his days with weariness. Um. So do you think while they were leeching, they kind of swayed, shrewd more towards Regal's side I don't, the whole time? I don't want to flat out say no, because really anything's possible but i think he already favored regal pretty heavily and there wouldn't have been a need and i think in the fogging of his mind it probably was just like harder to grasp the severity of everything 
That's probably true. So maybe that's part of it is he just couldn't grasp the severity. And maybe there is clarity in death. Like there's that moment before everything goes where you see your life flash before your eyes and realize all the mistakes you made. And then it makes things more clear. So maybe I'm being extra harsh on a guy who just died. But yeah, I don't I don't know that all of it can be attributed to what Justin and Serene were doing to him, though it does explain a lot of, I think, some of the things he let slip because I'm sure it was hard to grasp when your mind is being clouded as like, oh, that's just too difficult to understand or whatever they did to him. And I don't know. That's also frustrating in its own way that he was that taken over and nobody could help him because the only people trained in skill were against him. And then his other son that could have helped couldn't because he's too worn out with skilling in a different way. It just, I don't know. I I do feel bad for him. I don't want to make it sound like I think he's the worst person in the world. I disagree with a lot of his personal choices he made, but I think he was still trying to do the best he could with the tools given to him. You can try to do the best, but (laughs) you can also do wrong while trying to do the best. Exactly. Yeah. Just because you're trying to do your best doesn't mean it excuses the mistakes you make (laughs) along the way, I guess. But yeah, I, it is a very sad moment and I feel bad for Fitz again, because he's losing such a big, a big person in his life But I think it's odd that Shrewd in the last moments tells him to look above everything, almost like go claim your rightful spot. (laughs) It's almost like he's encouraging him to take back the promise of fighting with Regal or whatever. But I don't know. Is he telling Fitz to pursue being a royal or is he saying go be that writer you wanted to be or i i think it's not just like a pursue what you want you can be whatever you want to be when you grow (laughs) up it's like become a man you are not just a tool you are not what i made you you are son of chivalry just be yourself rather than somebody else's game piece right which little too late because he's gonna keep being a game piece for the rest of his life but good sentiment i suppose then we get to the point where the wit and skill are used together again after this whole thing which i thought was it it doesn't happen super often so i wanted to touch on that a little bit more because Mm -hmm. we always talk about the circle of magic and how we think the wit and skill are kind of bordering one another because Fitz says, oh, they're they're opposite. They're completely opposite, you know? Unlike is reading and singing or swimming and riding a horse. <laughs> but there's such intense overlap in certain areas between the wit and the skill that they can't be that separate. Right. Maybe the way it feels to do them feels as different as riding a horse and reading a book. But what they do, in essence, very similar. Like, watercolor versus abstract (laughs) yeah (laughs) same medium just a little bit different of how you approach them right so it's really interesting because it's a little bit described here again 
He forced the wit weapon upon them, Night Eyes did, through the channel the skill had opened. The wit and the skill were two different things, yet when they were linked to me by the skill, they must have been vulnerable to this other magic. So, Fitz can repulse people with the wit. Right. And I feel like that's kind of triggering that animal response of, like, flee, but it also seems like a physical repulsion of throwing them away from your body. Right. So it, that that part of the wit really kind of confuses me, just because none mm-hmm. of the wit is physical besides that. And, and Birk's thing of helping them heal. Right. It, it feels like a more physical version of, like, when an animal puts its like haunches up i don't i don't even know if that's the right yeah kind of like triggers like the the panic button in their brain right like i'm thinking like porcupine when they like put their quills out and then shoot them out it's a defensive reflex kind of yeah and like or like swiping a claw or something just less physical because (laughs) it's not you know yeah but it does i mean I don't know if you've ever been around an animal who does not want you to be near them, but I feel like I feel like, ooh, I need to get out of here whenever that happens. And so I assume it's that feeling just intensified a hundredfold. But it also seems to throw bodies across the room as well. Mm -hmm. Like not just... Of their own volition, but literally <laughs> throwing them across, which that's the part that confuses me. Like, right. if it was just like that, that intense feeling and then the person backs up of their own accord, fine. It's just the wit doesn't have too much physical, physical actions in its magic besides that and the healing thing. Yeah. So with the the connection that you can make with a skill to your mind, it lets Night Eyes cross that connection using the skill to throw back the other people's minds i don't know it's so weird and we don't see it very often i just it's such a hard thing too because all of this is so abstract like the ideas in themselves are abstract but then also the idea that your like mind slash soul could be hurt and fitz (laughs) has no idea what he's talking about either right so it's yeah hard to understand fully what's going on or to describe fully (laughs) right but yeah it is a definitely interesting mix here and i wonder if like he says they're more vulnerable to the wit if that's just because they've never had to guard against that or I think it's because they were trying to connect to him through the skill and they were latched onto his mind that made them vulnerable to the wit as well. Mm. Because they already opened that connection to skill, you just have to be open, not closed. Right. That let Night Eyes in. Fair. But hear me out. Can't you, like, repel with the wit to anyone animal or human because there is that horrible man from like the first or second chapter you can the barrel man or whatever (laughs) the awful barrel man that we still hate um (laughs) who fits repelled at yes and and he's repelled at birk before as well who doesn't have the capability to skill right but you have to be in the same room but no nearby i'm not even saying like i don't know how to word this correctly but 
are we thinking that the barrel man had some sensitivity to skill slash wit mm, or no. he's just a regular dude? I think he's just a regular dude. So I don't even know where I'm going with this, I guess. I think because Justin and Serene were not nearby when this happened, they were made vulnerable to the wit only because they were linked with the skill through Fitz's mind. Linked to Fitz's mind through the skill, I should say. Yeah. Otherwise, Night Eyes would not be able to repel them or attack them, or Fitz would not be able to repel them at all. There. I think that has to more do with proximity. And so, because they were attached, that allowed Night Eyes to okay. fight back. Yeah, that that's fair, I guess. But for normal people, you can just repel them if they are in your proximity. Unless you're Burek, who can do it from pretty far away. Because he's super, super strong. Right. <laughs> in the wit. <laughs> so when that attack happens and when Night Eyes forces them back, he says, flee, you can't, you can't win this battle, so flee. So Fitz goes back to his own body from the Skill River. And he ch- desperately tries to put up guards and walls to prevent them from coming in because he can still feel their tendrils of skin trying to attach to him. Yes. Still trying to get in and drain his skill from him. And we're reminded, as he comes back to his body and is fearing the worst, the fool is still here. Mm -hmm. This didn't take very long. This was probably just a few seconds. And the fool is freaking out. The fool had thrown his body across the kings and was wildly weeping. You've killed him! You've killed him! You've killed my king, you rotten traitor! The fool shrieked at me. No, it was not I. I could barely gasp out the words. To my horror, Wallace stood in the door, taking in the whole scene with wild eyes. Then he lifted his glance and screamed aloud in horror. He dropped the armful of wood he had brought. Both the fool and I turned our heads. Standing in the door of the king's bedchamber was the pocked man. Even knowing it was Chade, I still knew one moment of hair-raising terror. He was dressed in tattered grave clothes, smeared with earth and mildew. His long, gray hair hung in filthy locks about his face, and he had smeared his skin with ash that the livid scars might stand out the better. He lifted a slow hand to point at Wallace. The man screamed and then fled shrieking down the halls. His yammering for the guards echoed through the keep. Jade asks what goes on there, and the fool is crying out and wailing so Fitz has to yell above him he's dead but I did not kill him and at the same time he's taking command of the scene yeah he decides to go after those who did kill him and I just want to back up a brief second here to talk about all the things that led Fitz to acting this way because first question do you think Fitz would have gone after Justin and Serene had he not spent the past couple days being hounded by people, worrying about his life from Regal, dealing with the loss of Molly, trying to assuage celerity so that she doesn't get too upset and her dad frustrated, and then not being able to reach after Verity because he's so scared that the skill users are going to creep in on his conversations. Like, do you think all of these things led up to his actions to 
stop caring? Or do you think no matter what, even if he was in the best of moods coming in, he would have gone after these people in this way? I think the... I don't think Celerity and the Coastal Duchies and that promise factored too much into this, to be honest. It could have. It could factor into his mental state, but in my personal opinion, if those were not there, I think he still would do this. This The Coterie members stalking him and trying to get in and everything like that, I feel like did impact this a little bit more. But at the same time, having someone connected to you with a skill, feeling them die, and the same people who killed them, your king who you swore loyalty to, trying to kill you, I feel like he would still go after those people, not only just for revenge, but for self-preservation, because he can still feel them trying to get in. So he's like, I have to go kill these people. Right. So I feel like even without some of those external pressures, he still would. It just feels very reckless. I guess what is Fitz if not reckless, but it feels so reckless (laughs) to do, especially because here... We have Chade giving him an out, saying, you can come with me. We can go together with the queen. Let's go. And Fitz says, no, I'm I'm going to kill those people. If he doesn't and he goes into hiding, he has to keep his walls up 24-7. Otherwise, they're going to get in and find where he is. They're going to get into his mind and kill him, drain him, find out all of his memories. I feel like he thinks he's a liability at this point if he doesn't kill them. Hmm. I guess I just thought this was like a manic episode, I guess, rather than... I think it turns into that later with the the (laughs) the kerosene cake. Added on top of everything else. Yeah. But also if he wanted to kill them, there are easier ways, less disruptive ways to go about doing that. When you're when you're being under attack constantly by them with the skill? Yeah. Yeah, because he leads everybody on a wild goose chase around the hole. That, like, he makes sure everybody sees him acting a fool. You know, it's just... I, I get that there's, like, a lot of pressure, but also, why are they trying to kill him right now? Nobody would believe him if he said what, what they did. So there's no real need to kill him. Why not get more power right now? And then just blame the king's death on him. And then he just suddenly died too with nothing. Yeah, the, the coterie members found out the treachery and killed him. Easy. Mm-hmm. Lie secured. They move on. And they get more power at the same time. I suppose. But also nobody knows Fitz has the wit. Or the skill. Not the wit. <laughs> Both, I suppose. They but. don't need to know that he has the skill. They can just say he poisoned the king or prevented him from taking medicine or, mm. you know, something like that. Right. But also, I do want to point out I'm very frustrated with the fool because he has exasperated this whole situation by screaming, you've killed him without knowing anything that's going on. Yeah. In the middle of a very delicate operation. (laughs) I mean, it probably looked like that. I mean, I'm sure. Kneels in front of the king like the king says, hey, take me to Verity. And one second later, you're lying on the floor gasping and the king is dead. But also, like, come on, you think Fitz would kill the king? You've met him. <laughs> he doesn't have the guts. <laughs> True. 
So Fitz takes control of the situation, as I mentioned, and, and he says and commands these people around. I go to kill those who did. Take the fool to safety. Have you the queen? Shade's eyes were very wide. He stared at me as if he had never seen me before. All the candles in the room went suddenly to sputtering blue. It seemed only fitting. Get her to safety, I ordered my master. And see the fool goes with her. If he stays here, he's dead. Regal will let no one live who has been in this room tonight. No, I will not leave him. The fool's eyes were wide and empty as a mad thing. Take him however you can, Chade. His life depends on it. Fitz orders Chade to get him elf bark and to get the fool out of there and tells the fool, go with them, like, you have to go, be silent. He tries to comfort him by saying, I'm going to kill the people who did kill the king. Take that as comfort and leave. (laughs) And then a sudden tremor runs over him and the world rock rocked black at the edges. And that's when he demands the elf bark from Chade. Like, I need something to keep me going. I skilled, I'm weak, but I need to kill these people. And they leave. And he can hear that, but his eyes are closed. He's still laying on the ground. He sinks to his knees and could not keep from toppling. And he he try, he pulls himself up onto King Shrewd's lap. His cooling hand fell from the chair arm to rest atop my head. A stupid time for tears, I said aloud to the empty room. But that did not stop them. Blackness swirled at the edge of my vision. The ghostly skill fingers plucked at my walls, scraping at the mortar, trying every stone. I pushed at them, but they came right back. The way Chade had looked at me. I suddenly doubted that he would be back. Still, I took a breath. Night eyes, guide them to the fox's den. I showed him the shed they would emerge from and where they must go. It was all I could manage. My brother... Guide them, my heart. I pushed him feebly away and felt him go. Still the foolish tears tracked down my face. I reached to steady myself. My hand fell at the king's waist. I opened my eyes, forced my vision to clear. His knife. Not some jeweled dagger, but the simple knife that every man carries at his waist for the simple day-to-day tasks he does. I took a breath, then pulled it from its sheath. I held it in my lap and looked at it. So Fitz is grieving, um, understandably so, and trying really hard not to let that get in the way of what he's planning, which I think would be incredibly hard to do. Because like we've said, his grandfather died in his arms, basically, and he felt the life leave his grandfather, which I think makes things a little bit worse. Than yeah. just simply watching an old, a sick old person die. Yeah, definitely. And it's not as though, I think this is such an interesting thing because it kind of doesn't matter if you're prepared for someone to die or not. It's always really hard. And I think that's kind of what's great here because it's not necessarily the biggest surprise in the world that King Shrewd is gone now, right? right. We've had... A whole book basically leading up to this. And even though this is a way worse way to go than natural causes, he could have died tonight anyway. 
It could have just been in his sleep as far as anyone else would have known. And I think that it really shows that even though he's so weak and we know he's not doing well, that the death affecting Fitz the way it does really just is very real, I think. Yeah. I think it's very touching and speaks of what it's really like to lose someone, even even when you know it's probably coming soon. It's still sad and it's still hard. I was the tool Chade had forged for the king. The king had looked at me and wondered, what have I made of you? I did not need to wonder. I was the king's assassin, in more ways than one. But I would see that I served him as I had been intended one last time. Shade comes and gives him care seed cake. Asks him again to come into hiding with him. Fitz says no. Chews up the whole, the whole care seed cake. Swallows and says go. I have a task and so have you. Birk is waiting. The alarm will be raised soon. Get the queen away quickly while you have a chance of getting ahead of the hunt. I will keep them busy. He released me. Goodbye, boy, he said gruffly, and stooped to kiss me on the forehead. It was farewell. He didn't expect to see me alive again. That made two of us. He feels the kerosene surge through him. He remembers stories about kerosene that Birk told him and what it does to a man if they live after that. But well, he doesn't intend to. Not a man, a horse. A horse, yeah. Which, I don't know if this is the first time we've read this. This definitely is a repeating story that happens throughout all of the series. Mm -hmm. Because I clearly remember Fitz thinking about this in the last, the very last series trilogy. I, I think they mention it in the first one because during their... Springfest or something like that. They have kerosene. Whenever cakes. they also talk about it, whenever Chade is taking yeah. it to go. Yeah, during the trip to forge. Yes, whenever the first forged people are are found. Um, so this is a repetitive thing, which I find very interesting. That this story, like every time I see it, I'm like, oh yeah, good old Burek story. It feels like my own memory now, <laughs> like a story that Bjork told me when I was young, uh, that I'll always remember that horses. He had warned me that some dishonest horse traders fed their charges Karis oil on their grain for the purpose of winning a race or to make a sick horse show well at an auction. He'd also warned me that a horse so treated was often never the same beast again, if he survived. Often repeated. Right. He takes it to heart. He does, and I find this very interesting, because every time he does it, he's like, I'll never be the same again, and then kind of is the same afterwards. He, I mean... He mentions here that he knew, he knew, he's seen Chade use it, and I knew Chade had used it on occasion, and I had seen him drop like a stone when the effects wore off, yet I did not hesitate. Right, but that doesn't mean that Chade isn't affected in the long run from it right. in his mind, I guess that just means that like short term, as soon as this wears off, I'm passing out, which isn't super great whenever, you know, you're running for your life, but, but also he doesn't think he's running for his life. <laughs> he thinks he's going to kill some people and he's going to die. 
I guess. I just... I think it's interesting, which maybe... Maybe it is a little true, because after this, he isn't really the same. <laughs> Not because of the kerosene, but just what the happens, following yeah. the torture. tragedy. But I guess the like few other times he does it, it always ends in something bad happening or some horrible revelation, which changes the trajectory of what he's doing. So in some ways, Bjork is right. In some ways. It's more like a causation, correlation kind of thing. He uses it For because sure. he needs it in a dire situation almost every single time. And something bad usually happens because it's fits. Right. So, right. No, he it's... says, he asks here, uh, perhaps Birk was right about me, the ecstasy of the skill or the frantic flush and heat of the hunt. Did I taunt self-destruction or did I desire it? Same with the skill. Like, is it is it addiction with the battle... With skilling, with, you know, kerosene. That's what a lot of these books are about, is that addiction to these different things. Right. Do you think he's fully addicted to that feeling? I think, in a weird way, he's addicted to the increased chances of his death. Which sounds really awful. But I think Fitz is... Somebody who probably struggles with depression. Yeah. And has very low self esteem and doesn't really feel like he has much worth. And I think the idea that he could die doing something great instead of just going in his sleep or living a mundane life is kind of an exciting thing for him. So I almost feel like it's an addiction to the idea that. His death wouldn't be meaningless that way, I guess. I think he and Jade talk about that, actually, that assassins have different ways of thinking of things. And they have Mm -hmm. a doesn't exactly touch on the same things, but it's the same kind of meaning that, you know, some people are lucky just to die in the field doing. Doing something that they were ordered to do rather than wait and die. And I don't want to downplay the addiction that Fitz definitely suffers from because that is its own beast. And I think there is some addiction on its own right happening. I don't know that at this moment it is fully just skill addiction or no, I think that comes drug in the addiction. Next book. Yeah. I think that's something that prolonged use of the skill and drugs to help the symptoms of the skill <laughs> has created yeah but i think he probably has an addictive personality anyway and it didn't help but yeah in this moment i think it's more like in this time period of his life i think it's more of if i do this at least i'm a somebody right (laughs) rather than it feels really good make my make my life worth it Mm -hmm. rather than just being a tool right so we follow his manic episode, the strength that surge, surges through him from the kerosene. He is giggling, running through the halls, hiding, waiting for the guards to pass, dashing past them down the steps. Someone eventually shouts after him, like, hey, we should chase that guy. Right, the guy laughing and holding a knife in his hand. It's... He's definitely looking a little crazy, to say the least. And he knows all the servants' passages and the the back ways. So he he knew where he was going, but he doesn't go there directly just to lose people, to not 
lead them directly to where he's going. Exactly. So he goes through the kitchens and he goes through these different passages and things like that. All the while, these skill fingers are still searching after him, trying to get into his brain. And he's heading to Galen's chambers because that's where he knows that Justin and Serene are at because he knows that they created kind of a gathering place for the Coterie and a shrine-ish place to Galen. for Galen. Yeah. And Serene had taken over his quarters after Galen had passed away. Right. Taken pretty much his whole place in Buckkeep. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of this crazy episode of cat and mouse chase of Fitz running through the halls laughing and waving a sword or a knife, we get a small little excerpt about Galen and about how he was kept on the side of the keep that faced the mountains and that he thinks it's because he hated the sea. He's from the inland. He doesn't like the sea. And I thought that was just really interesting that in the middle of all this, we get a small little like almost time pause for Fitz to think about Galen and a couple sentences of Galen's history. Yeah. Of just a little bit more about Galen that we didn't know before. Like, why does he hate the sea? Does he know how to swim? (laughs) Is that maybe he doesn't know how to swim and that's why he hates it or just what it represents? I feel like he hates the sea because he was Queen Desire's son. (laughs) And and she's like, oh, the coast sucks. (laughs) Which is so sad because beaches are awesome. (laughs) I I don't think this is a beach though it's like a rocky cliff well they have beaches at the bottom of the cliff but like the ocean in general is really pretty i don't know yeah i mean i also live inland and it's cool i guess but if i could live by a sea on a rocky hill i'm all for it let's do it (laughs) so he gets to galen's chamber the door's locked but not bolted so he easily gets in and sees justin and serene Sitting in a few chairs, hands held in a skill trance, still searching for him, fighting off the ecstasy of the skill. And he goes up and says surprise and slits Serene's throat. She jerked once and I let her fall to the floor. And then Justin leaps to his feet with a shriek. And I braced myself for his onslaught. He fooled me, though. He fled squealing down the hall, and I followed, knife in hand. He's expecting a fight. He's expecting them to fight back. But I don't know that they're really trained to do that. I mean, mentally, they're trained to fight. They're not. And Justin is the scared one to begin with. He's terrified right. of Fitz. There's not, but I thought it was funny that he's like, he tricked me by running away. Like, that's <laughs> what normal people do, Fitz. <laughs> normal people, when people attack them, run instead of trying to figure out how they can kill them. So, not that surprising. He says, no fox tricks for Justin. He favored the most direct route to the Great Hall, shrieking all the way. I laughed as I ran. Even now, it seems to me incredible to recall that, but I cannot deny it. Did he suppose Regal would draw a sword to defend him? Did he think, having killed my king, that anything in the world could stand between me and him? In the Great Hall, musicians had been playing and folk dancing, but Justin's entrance put an end to that. 
I had gained on him, so that there were scarce a score of steps between us when he caromed into one of the laden tables. Folk were still standing shocked at his entrance when I leaped on him and pulled him down. I punched the knife in and out of him half a dozen times before anyone thought they should interfere. As Regal's pharaoh-bred guards reached for me, I flung his twitching body into them, found a table at my back, and leaped onto it. I held up my dripping blade. The king's knife, I told them, and showed it round. Taking blood in vengeance for the king's death. That is all. He's mad, someone cried. Verdi's death has driven him mad. Shrewd, I cried in fury. King Shrewd has fallen to treachery this night. And the guards hit the table and he fights. Yes, specifically Regal's guards. The yes, inland the inlander. Guard. And he fights them off. He is flying high on Kerasid. He fights off three of them. He is pirouetting and he's too fast. And even when they do hit him, it doesn't really hurt anyway because he's super drugged up. And so, and also there's probably a lot of adrenaline going on. Oh yeah. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> so he is not feeling the severity of the wounds he's getting. But on top of that, he notices around him, everything's breaking into a brawl. It's out Islanders versus in Islanders. Yeah. Someone says in Islanders. Oh, oops. No, not even out Islanders. Oh my gosh. <laughs> ah. Inlanders versus the coastal duchies. Yes. Someone says in the back of the crowd, arms to the bastard. They are killing Fitzchivalry. And a struggle begins. He's not going for the kill on any one of these guards. That should be known. He, he's slashing them because they get too close or he's stabbing them in the hand if they, they strike at him with a blade. Someone above the whole crowd is yelling, shrewd, King Shrewd is slain. And he can tell more people are getting involved. And then all of a sudden, Buckkeep's own guard came pouring into the room. I heard Kerf's voice raised above the general din. Separate them. Quell it. Try not to spill blood in the king's own hall. I saw my attackers ringed, saw Blade's look of consternation as he saw me, and then cried out over his shoulder, It's Fitz chivalry. They're trying to take down the Fitz. Separate them. Disarm them. Kerf butted heads with one of Regal's guards, dropping him. And he can see that the buck guards are falling on Regal's personal guard, battering blades down, trying to break up the fight, creating space around everything. And Fitz can see, after he gets a little breathing room, that people are fighting with fists, with blades. It's just a big brawl, and they're slowly getting separated, and it calms down. Suddenly, Blade shouldered between two of Fitz's attackers, sending them sprawling to the floor. He leaped forward and confronted me. Blade, I greeted him with delight, thinking him an ally. Then, as I noticed his defensive stance, I told him, You know I would not draw Blade against you. I know that well, lad, he told me sadly, and the old soldier flung himself forward to trap me in a bear hug. I do not know who hit me on the back of the head, or with what. And he's captured. Right. And this is super sad because... He has a ton of people attacking him right now, and then someone who he thinks is a friend is like, well, better just hug him tight so that somebody else can knock him out instead of helping him take down the people safely that are trying to kill him. Because they're the police force. They don't know what's going on. Someone's saying the king has been has died. Fitz is fighting people. They're trying to quell the whole riot. So they want to stop all of the people who are aggravating things. 
Right. It's a difficult position to put the guards in because they have to do their duty. But at the same time, yeah, they do know Fitz's chivalry. <laughs> yeah. I don't think he wanted to hurt him. Clearly, he could have attacked Fitz. And he just bear hugs him. Yeah. I want to believe that it's one of Regal's guards who knocks him out, that like takes a cheap shot and just knocks him out. And what would have happened is that Blade would have put handcuffs on him (laughs) and led him still conscious away. Right. Who knows? I don't know. It's so sad, though. But also a little cathartic for the coastal duchies i am sure to get a little bit of bloodshed in to get a little bit of fighting get get that one swing on that stupid inlander who really was just talking smack all dinner long you know (laughs) so i guess technically fitz does seem pretty happy at the end of this but i think that's mostly drug induced so i don't think it counts I'm going to chalk that one up for the maybe column. We don't get very many, so I'm going to you know, put so-so. It's in the halfway. Yeah. He's happy to see his friend Blade. He is avenging the death of his king. Yeah. But here takes a, a drastic turn now. He's going to be in the dungeons. He's going to die. Yeah, he's going to endure some of the most character-altering trauma that he has had to endure yet. And probably the worst he has to endure. Until the very end. Yeah. The last book, probably. And even that, I don't think, is as bad. Uh, it, it is described as the worst pain. Like the, the blow dart with the worms and stuff. Right. And slowly dying. No, that hurts. <laughs> but that's not the same as, like, torture by your relative, knowing you didn't do anything wrong and is doing it anyway because I hate you. Like, I feel like there's a difference in, like, the yeah, mental side of that. That's true. Like, pain-wise. He, he doesn't think there's any way he's going to be saved there, and at the end of the final trilogy, he's carving his dragon. Yeah. I can see that. I don't know. Well, thanks so much for listening. It's going to get brutal in the next few chapters. Yeah. So, uh, thanks for, for listening for the next few episodes, if you guys can, can talk about that and listen to us talking about that. We'll try to be good. We usually are. We don't like going too in-depth on the gory details. It's not necessary. We all know what happens. Yeah. If you want to talk to us about anything, please reach out and email us. Message us directly. Let us know anything. We will try to respond. We will talk to you about theories that you have, any concerns that you have about our podcast specifically. Let us know how we're doing, how you want to see it improved. We'll, uh, we'll hear you guys out. Yeah. We like hearing from you.